Today we begin uh, the first week of question and answers. I have four questions that uh, have been brought to my attention. I'll try to answer them as, as briefly as I can. It's not very easy to answer questions briefly and cover all the ground. Uh, but again, what do you do? I'll try to balance between depth and uh, brevity at the same time. But first, let's, let's turn to the Lord and ask his blessings. Then we'll take off. Let's, let's pray. Uh, glorious, gracious, heavenly Father, worthy are you to be praised in heaven and on earth. For you loved us with an everlasting love. You chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before you. And in love you predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of your Son. And so, Lord, we praise your name this morning that we are recipients of your grace. We are, uh, we are here because you have kept us and shown us your goodness. We pray that uh, you be gracious to us as we spend this time together considering various questions uh, regarding things to come, uh, the last things. Lord, I depend on you to be able to answer these questions. Uh, perhaps some of the questions may not be answered satisfactorily since I am limited. But Lord, I pray that uh, they would be answered faithfully, faithfully uh, that uh, Christ Jesus would be magnified in all this and your word be exalted. Please forgive us of our sins and lead us this day to know your presence, to hear your voice, to follow you, to serve you. May we all experience the conviction of, your, of our sins by your spirit. Uh, help us to grasp the depth of your demands upon us and yet the limitations of our uh, of ourselves help help us to see our finiteness and your infinity and to know lord that our help comes from the lord and to humbly confess that apart from the lord we can do nothing uh, lead us help us Strengthen us, Lord, and give us that meekness to receive your word, the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. Uh, hasten the feet of others uh, who wish to be part of our assembly today and make our fellowship warm. Help us to honor you in thought and word and deed. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, let me point out uh, from the beginning that the difficulties of eschatology is a general interest. Uh, I'd say it's more than interest. It, there is insatiable curiosity when it comes to things to come. Uh, matters eschatology are met with that appetite for knowing that which is hidden, uh, that which has not been uh, fully revealed. People want to know something about the future because 
That's one of the limitations that human beings have. We, we desire to know when we will die. And so we are not content with uh, that counsel from Moses that the Lord may help us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We, we want to know the exact date when we may possibly die. And uh, we think that that would bring us peace. But really, it, it can't. Uh, it's, it's likely to fill your heart with uh, anxiety and worry as the day draws near. Um, we think about, uh, we want to know exactly the mechanism of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. Uh, but we have to be content with the mortality, putting on immortality, and uh, this perishable body putting on the imperishable, and to be able to rejoice that um, death has been swallowed up in victory. And uh, we can ask death, death, where is your sting? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death, has permanently killed it and gained victory for us. And uh, others want to know when exactly is the Lord Jesus Christ going to return? So many uh, preachers have set to calculate dates when the Lord may come. They would say that we don't know the hour, we don't know the day, but we can know the week, uh, we can know the year. Um, and so many men like Harold Camping uh, have just gone rogue because the Bible is very clear that regarding the day, regarding the time, we do not even need to write to you, brothers, for you know that the Lord has very clearly said that we do not know it and we cannot know it. Another pertinent question that we are going to deal with in this uh, session is a question of um, the future of the nation of Israel that has been used uh, to be one of the beacons or milestones of determining the return of Christ. And so there is a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, the Jews who are in Palestine and uh, the gathering of more to, to, to form a bigger nation. Um, and that whole question of the ethnic Israel has been a big question in matters of eschatology. Uh, I suppose another thing that comes to mind every time we think eschatology is the question of uh, uh, judgment, the eternal judgment, uh, and, and the eternal condition. Uh, what is heaven like? Uh, and I think that's a question that we could perhaps begin with. Uh, is heaven a place with dimensions? Is there a time in heaven? These are some of the questions that people ask. So perhaps let's begin there because I have a question on what is heaven. And this is in light of me teaching that uh, the eternal state would be the unveiling of the new heavens and the new earth where uh, 
then one is concerned that it seems like I've withdrawn heaven. So they are asking then, what is heaven? And uh, the Bible teaches that heaven is a special dwelling place of God. It's a special dwelling of God where he peculiarly manifests his glory. Uh, look at Psalm 23. Uh, Psalm 23. Heaven is a special dwelling of God where he especially manifests his glory. The Bible says, this is David having said that the Lord is my shepherd. He ends up with verse 6 saying, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord there, which is forever, is not the temple. It is heaven in view. Um, if you go back to 1 Kings 8.27, First uh, Kings 8.27, this is Solomon's prayer, and this is what he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Um, but perhaps we could read the world thing so that you can see the comparison of the house of the Lord, the temple, which David references in, in Psalm 23 verse 6. Uh, and, and now the temple has been built. Because remember when David was writing Psalm 23, the temple was not there. There was the tabernacle. Let's read on and hear what Solomon says of the temple. So he says, uh, uh, the heaven and the highest of heaven cannot contain God, how much less this house that I've built. And he says, yet have regained to the prayer of your servant and to this plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may open night and day towards this house, the place which you've said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So uh, clearly Solomon's understanding of where heaven is is this is where God dwells. And he says, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears its oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own hand and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this place, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up 
and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive their sin of forgive the sin of your servants, your people in Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So realize that when he says there in verse 35, when heaven is shut up, that's a different usage of the word heaven from what he has been talking about. When he says heaven is shut up, uh, he's talking about the atmospheric heaven, so to speak. That is the first heaven. Um, and then he goes on, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards his house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgiven out, render to each uh, whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind. They may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Uh, it goes on all the way to verse 49, but I think the point is already made that uh, heaven is the, dwelling place, is the dwelling place of God. Now I need to point out that the Bible uses the term heaven to refer to the physical universe visible to us, that is the, the airy uh, heaven or the sky, that's the first heaven. And then there is the celestial heaven, where the, the, or the starry heaven. And uh, then there is the heaven of God. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about being caught up to the third heaven, verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So which is the first heaven? The first heaven is the, is the sky. And then the second heaven is the starry heaven where there are stars and the sun and the moon, the celestial heaven. And then the third heaven where he was, this, this man was caught up is the heaven of God. Um, <clears throat> this is invisible to us. <clears throat> Obviously, God is omnipresent. And as Solomon rightly says, God uh, cannot, be, cannot be contained in the highest of heaven. Um, as, and the, 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 another question related to what is heaven is, is it a place? Is it a place? In other words, is it a location? And does it have spatial dimensions? 
And my answer is yes. Heaven is a place with special dimensions. Uh, why do I say that? Because I can demonstrate to you that there are there are people in physical body or who occupy space in heaven. And the first is uh, Enoch. Um, Elijah, and especially our Lord Jesus Christ. So, bodily state of Enoch, Elijah, and uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, those three, at the very least, are in heaven. And it's, it assures us that heaven is a physical place with special dimensions. Now, if you look at uh, Genesis 5.21, it speaks of uh, Enoch, uh, who did not die. Uh, he, he was taken up. He did not see death. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Uh, how did God take him? We, we don't know, but we know that he didn't die. And if he didn't die, uh, because the whole emphasis of Genesis 5 is death, and there is one exception to prove the rule, and this is the exception of Enoch. Clearly, if he didn't die, wherever he went, he went with his undead body, and he's occupying space. Elijah, you know the story of Elijah too well, and the Lord. Um, the Lord, in his resurrected body, could eat fish that had been roasted. Where did that fish go? In his physical, so to speak, tummy. So the if you can demonstrate that there are things in heaven that occupy space, then that would be enough evidence that heaven has special, special, uh, special dimensions. Um, Now that raises another question. If heaven has special dimensions, does it have time? Or is it, is, it, is it timeless? And that question is relevant because um, the authorized version, uh, translation of Revelation 10.6, <clears throat> Maybe you could turn there and let's see what your Bibles say. Revelation 10, 6. Uh, I'm reading from uh, the English Standard Version. Uh, 
I'm waiting for you to turn there. Uh, we read from verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and saw by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it. So clearly, again, there is something created in heaven. It's not an empty, you know, nothingness. Um, and then, uh, see in what is in it, that there would be no more delay. That's what my version says. But the authorized version says, there should, be, there should no longer be delay. Sorry. Uh, how is it? How is it? Uh, put there. Who has authorized the version to read it for us? King, King James. King, King James. The old King James, not the NKJV. Anyone? No? Yeah, I would uh, highly discourage you from using uh, King James version. Because you're not living in the 16th century or the 17th century. The English there is archaic. It's no longer used. And it gives us problems when it comes to the usage of words. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the way it is translated there by the King James is that there, there would be no longer time or something like that. But really, this verse is speaking about the lack of delay. So back to our question, is there time in heaven? We are seeking to answer the question, what is heaven? And uh, we found that it's a dwelling, special dwelling place of God where he peculiarly manifests his glory. And we found that uh, it has special dimensions, and now we are asking whether it has time. Um, obviously, only God transcends time. Um, it's only God who the Bible says that he's not limited by space or time. Um, he's, the, he's the king of angels. Um, First Timothy one seventeen, uh, Paul describes him to the King of Angels, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, Revelation six eleven says that. And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little long until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who are to be killed as they themselves had been. Um, since God only, or God alone, uh, transcends time, the created beings who dwell in heaven experience the limitations not only of space, but also of time, according to Revelation 6.11. Um, you can see there that these who are in heaven, uh, they, are, they are told to rest 
a little longer. That's a term or a phrase of time. Until the number, even the word until presupposes time, until their number should be complete, who were killed as they themselves had been. Um, so the eternal state, because you'd say that this is intermediate state, does the eternal state have time? Uh, if you look at uh, what the Lord says of the eternal state, like in Mark 10, 30, uh, it's called the, the age, or the age is to come. Uh, uses that phrase in Luke chapter 20, verse 34 to 35. And it's also there in Ephesians 1, 21, and chapter 2, verse 7 of Ephesians. Uh, so that, that word, age to come, is a contrast to the age now. And that's why we believe that there has been only one age, which is where, where we are at, and then there would be the age to come. So there is no nothing in between. So that phrase, age to come, which could also be translated world age, um, is, is a phrase that is being used of the eternal state. Now, we know that heavenly condition and eternal state uh, is called that, you know, age to come. Um, but um, if you look keenly, you will see that the reality of the glory of heaven, where the Bible uses such phrases that I already pointed out to you, uh, the, 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 the imagery of a city, uh, heavenly or New Jerusalem, and the imagery of a paradise, the paradise of God, all point to an aspect of, you know, communication and, um, and, and that kind of interaction does presuppose, uh, presuppose time. You know, you speak, and that takes a while while the other person is listening. So, so clearly the aspect of time would be there, except that it's, it's going to be a continuous time without an end. So we talk about, or the Bible talks about eternity. So there is an aspect of time, but that time will continue and continue and continue. Okay, so, so, so that's the answer that I have to the question, what is heaven? Uh, another very interesting question asked is, what are the spirits of believers who die now do in heaven? Especially bearing in mind that they are dismembered, they are without body. What do they do now? The idea that we have is, is that heaven will be, or people will die and they go sit on some nice looking cloud and they may perhaps be given a harp to play and they sing hallelujah all the time. Isn't it? That's what we sing in uh, um, Lord Jesus, I love thee. I know that thou art mine in mansions of glory and in endless delight. 
I will ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I mean, that, that idea feels like you are in cloud nine and it just feels good. Oh, and by the way, uh, if, if you have flown and you are cruising over the clowns, the clowns look really, 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 really nice. Uh, especially when you're at the top and you're overseeing them, it looks wonderful. But heaven is not like that. Heaven, there is work to be done. Now, we need to begin by pointing out that heaven is first and foremost a rest from all our labors. It's a, it's a rest in heavenly Canaan. And, and that's the understanding here of the passage that, that we've just read. Uh, they were told to rest. So there is resting in heaven. And even when you talk about the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, it is, it is a token of that time to come of rest. So um, the author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, um, verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that's speaking of heaven. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And remember that heaven is a special dwelling of God where he peculiarly reveals his glory. So there is rest. Now, even in 14, in, in Revelation 14, verse 13, we read, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who died the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Apostolic preached on this beatitude, beatitude in Revelation not so long ago, so I would not belabor it. The, the point is, we go to heaven to rest from all the temptations of sin, of the devil, of the world, of the flesh. We rest from all that. So we look forward to our death because that would be a time when we would, be, uh, we would, would rest. Even from the fight of faith. The, that's what I would be preaching on this morning. I mean, Paul says that we fight the good fight of faith. In heaven, there won't be any fighting. Uh, Paul compares our Christian journey as running marathon. There won't be that in heaven. There won't be any perseverance as we know it in heaven because there would be rest. Amen to that. But then in heaven, though we would be resting, we would also be communing, not just with God and seeing him face to face, but also with our fellow citizens of heaven. In the heavenly Jerusalem, there would be that communion with those with us. Uh, we would enjoy rest in Abraham's bosom, like Lazarus, perhaps. 
And also remember that in heaven there is reigning with Christ. Um, Ephesians 2.6, you've been saved and placed in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies to reign with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 and Colossians 3.1-3, you fix uh, your eyes not on earthly things, but on the heavenly where Christ is. Philippians 1.23, you died to be with Christ and to reign with Christ. And Revelation 20, 20 verse 4 that we considered last Sunday tells us very clearly that there is reigning with Christ. So, so there is rest in heaven. There is communion with fellow saints in heaven. There is reigning with Christ and then there is beholding God and the intercession of the Lamb in the temple, in the true temple, where we would serve and worship God. So yes, there, there will be indeed a lot of singing hallelujah uh, in service and worship to God. But that, that would not be the only thing. Now, I need to point out that in the intermediate state, in uh, which, which we pointed out that it's an anticip anticipatory or pre preliminary fulfillment uh, of the blessedness of the eternal state, and obviously there are then similarities, but uh, those who are in heaven right now their blessedness is complete. Okay? In the intermediate state right now, those who die in the Lord, uh, they don't enjoy everything that is there to be enjoyed in the eternal state. And I'll show you five things that shows the incompleteness of the blessedness of the present intermediate state for those who die in the Lord. First of all, they, they are yet to receive the redemption of their bodies. They are naked. Is the language Paul uses there in 2 Corinthians 5. And he longs, he said, if, uh, let, let me just read that for you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, so he calls the present condition where we are in the body as being in a tent. Verse 2, uh, let me just read from verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that is, if we die, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
He goes on to say, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Um, and if you turn to back to Revelation 6, let me just read that passage as well so that we can take them together. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on, on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they themselves had been. So I've pointed out that the, 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 the incompleteness of the blessed condition of those who die in the Lord now in the intermediate state is that they are yet to receive their redeemed uh, bodies, their resurrected bodies. And that just shows that their, their redemption has happened, but then it's not been completed yet until the resurrection of that great day. And then secondly, as we've just read, their brethren, the elect of God, who are still on earth, are partially redeemed. They are longing for their appearing. They are longing for us to die too and be with them so that our communion with them may be enjoyed to the fullness. But you realize that that's not going to happen until the judgment of that great day when we would be publicly vindicated. And that's the other thing about the incompleteness of their condition. They are yet to be publicly vindicated and acknowledged at the final judgment by God. That still hasn't happened. And then thirdly, their inheritance, a redeemed creation, is not yet theirs. They're yet to receive that inheritance that is incorruptible, and unfading and imperishable that is reserved in heaven for those who believe. And then finally, in this verse, what were they longing for? For the destruction, for the judgment and the destruction of their enemies. That has not happened yet. So while we long to die, to be with the Lord, yet we should realize that the, the, the condition in that intermediate state is not complete. And eventually, when we enter into the eternal state, it would be all perfect. All these conditions would be met. Now, the, the most difficult question that I need to deal with is, is the, whether Israel and the church are distinct people. But let me just briefly say something about a question that I don't have enough time to deal with right now. Perhaps we'll deal with it next week. Uh, it's a question of 
the prospect of the church during the, the gospel age? Is it tribulational or is it triumphant? Now, I ask that question because you know that the post mills would say that the church is triumphant and they see much optimism as days unfold. They even see the Christianization of nations um, as time goes. That's on the one hand, the post mills would say that. But on the other hand, the pre mills would be saying, no, 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 it's all gonna be dark. There is going to be tribulation and it's going to be worse and worse and worse. So what, what, what do we say? Now, what we see is that both go hand in hand. Both challenges and difficulties, persecution in the church, goes hand in hand with the gospel speeding ahead and being honored among all, among the nations. It's not necessarily that there would be that period of persecution and persecution only. What the church has seen is that in some places there is persecution, in other places there is victory. So we see them going hand in hand, and there is, there is that constant tension between tribulation and, and, uh, uh, and victory. So let's then come to the, that important question of Israel and the church. Are they distinct people of God, or are they one? The church and Israel are not distinct people. And that, that has been the understanding of the church for a long time until the rise of dispensationalism. Even premillennialists of years before the dispensational theology came in, did not have an understanding that there is a distinction between the church and Israel. And you know that you cannot be dispensational and not teach that the church and Israel are, are distinct. And I have a responsibility to show you from the scriptures that the church and Israel are, are one. I want to show you the unity and the continuity of that unity. And I also want to show you the superiority of the church over Israel of old. And I say this because the Bible shows that the promises made to Israel are fulfilled to the new Israel, that is the church, the Israel of God. <clears throat> um, let's talk about the unity. That term, one of the things that the dispensational theologians say is that the, there was no church in the Old Testament. 
But actually, that was not the understanding even of the, the, the translators of the Hebrew Bible when they dealt with, um, when they translated it from Hebrew to Greek, the Septuagint translators. Uh, they used, they translated the congregation of Israel both in Deuteronomy, in Kings, in Micah, as church. So if you, if you look at the Septuagint, you would see that that word ecclesia is used to describe the congregation of Israel, both in the uh, Septuagint and the Hebrew uh, word for assembly. <clears throat> About 70 times to be precise. So Deuteronomy 1.30, 1 Kings 8.14, Micah 2.5, and in the New Testament, um, Stephen's understanding of what was the assembly of the Israelites in, uh, in Sinai, in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, is that he called them church, along with uh, Hebrews 2.12. Since the same term is used to describe God's people in both testaments, then unity is established. Therefore, it's not true, true to say that the church is not found in the Old Testament. Now, a caveat here, we must not equate the New Testament church with the Old Testament church. Okay? Because they're different. Yet, their differences are not opposites. They're not opposed to each other. They're not against each other. Um, but one is a development or a growth or a continuation of the other. So the two are united. And I see the two as the same thing at different levels of development. Now, if you look at a caterpillar and a butterfly, they don't look the same, but they are all butterflies. If you look at the seed of a maize and a growing maize, a maize plant, they are not the same, but they are both maize. So it's a question of development and growth. Now, I point out about the unity of the church and the Israel by pointing out a number of things. Number one, um, the principles of constitution of both Israel and the church are the same. And I would ask you, what made Israel God's people? Yes? What made Israel God's people? It was God's love, wasn't it? It was not because they were any better than any other nation. It was that God's love was cast upon them. It was God's election. God chose them. And it was God's redemption. God redeemed them and made them into a nation from Egypt and brought them into their land in Canaan. 
and it was God's covenant. So then I ask you, what are the principles that constitute the church? Is it not God's love? Is it not God's election? Is it not God's redemption and covenant that we have in Christ? It is. So the principles of constitution, both of the Old Testament church, the Israel, and the New Testament church, that is the church of Christ, or the New Israel, are the same. Moreover, the New Testament clearly asserts that the church is a true Israel of God. And I want to show you a number of passages that clearly say that. And I know I'm running out of time now. And you haven't asked your questions yet. Maybe I won't, I won't uh, uh, allow any questions from anywhere else uh, next Sunday. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 10, 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What's the answer to that? They are. And what is Paul saying? He is saying and comparing what happened in the temple as uh, in comparison to, to the present church. <coughs> Excuse me. And he uses, from verse 15, he says, I speak to the, as to the sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the, in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then he goes on to say that we consider the people of Israel. <clears throat> if you look at uh, Romans chapter 2, this is a passage that I've dealt with recently. Uh, 2.28 <clears throat> and 29. For no one is a Jew, listen to that language, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, it's not even an Israelite, it's a Jew now. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the latter. His praise is not from man, but from God. <clears throat> Again, look at Galatians 9.6. I'm just reading these pa passages. Excuse me, Romans 9.6. So that uh, you just see it for yourselves. Verse 6 to 8. Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not, listen to that. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all ethnic Jews belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because he are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh 
who are the children of God by the children of the promise are accounted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had and conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had not and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Galatians 4.28 Galatians 4.28 Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. What? Did you hear that? You Galatians, like Isaac, you are the children of promise, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Okay, so Galatians are like Isaac because they are children of promise. Look at chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And you know that uh, Israelites were Israelites on the basis of being faithful to the word of God. Philippians 3.3 says that too. It is evident then that the uncircumcision of the Gentiles will be regarded as circumcision if he, meet, if he meets the spiritual qualifications. Because one is a Jew if is indwelt by the Spirit, and one is an Israelite if he is an elect of God. So, if you look at the characteristics and the privileges of both the Israelites and the church, are completely the same. I don't, I don't have the time to show you this, but if you go to the Old Testament, the Israelites are called saints. You come to the New Testament, the church is called saints. Even the Corinthians, they're called saints. You go to the Old Testament, the Israelites are called the elect. You come to the New Testament, we are called the elect. You go to the Old Testament, the Israelites are called the beloved of God. The same is refer, reference to the, to the church in the, in the New Testament regarding the church. The Jews are called called, the called ones. So is the church. The Jews are called the church, as I've already pointed out. The Jews and the church are called the flock of God. We are called the holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a peculiar treasure. Exactly as the Jews were called in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, so are we called in 1 Peter 2, 9. We are people of inheritance. We are God's tabernacle. So, the Bible teaches the unity and the continuity of ethnic Israel in the church where the Galatian church 
for instance, comprised both of the uh, of um, comprised of Gentiles, and even Jerusalem Church is equally called in similar terms, because we are Abraham's seed. There in Galatians three twenty nine. Again, remember this. Abraham's seed was the title of honor of Jews. If you go to Romans 11, verse 16 through 24, which addresses the relation of ethnic Israelites, uh, perhaps you can go there very quickly. Uh, Romans 11. says in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And then verse 25, the mystery of Israel's salvation is the title. And we read, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now that's in ethnic Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. You notice that the inclusion of the Gentiles coming in, and, and it's assumed that they are coming in to be Israelites, um, so that they, they together would be what is called all Israel, which would be saved. Because the Bible says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. <clears throat> so, this relation of ethnic Israel's, uh, Israelites with the church, using analogies that speak of one olive, uh, olive tree, Embracing both the natural branches, that is the Israelites, and the grafted world branches, that is the Gentiles. But together they are forming one olive tree. So it's not like there would be a fig tree after the engrafting of the Gentiles. There was one, fig, uh, there was one olive tree and it's going to be propagated, showing the continuity of, <coughs> excuse me, the continuity of the same tree that is uh, the church. Now, if you look at uh, Ephesians 2, 11 through 19, you would see that the Gentiles were once far off, separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise without hope and without God. And then they were brought near. Near to what? Near to the commonwealth of Israel. And they were made the citizens of the same commonwealth of Israel. And, now, and they are now in Christ as one nation. Again, you notice that all the promises made to Israelites were, they were only to the remnant and to the church. The remnant Jews and the church is what is called the church. In fact, that's a point of Paul. He's telling the Romans that God's promise has not failed. And I am a, I'm a studying example to show that God's promise of election continues. Uh, 
not just among Jewish Romans, but also among we Jews. Um, nowhere in Scripture do we read that all the Jews would be faithful to God. In fact, it was prophesied by Jewish prophets in the scriptures that the, promise, the promises of the new covenant would be extended to the nations, to the Gentiles. I mean, read Isaiah 54 verse 8 or Isaiah 55. And it is clear that the head of the church was and is the Messiah of Israel. And you can see that in Galatians 3, 6, 2 Corinthians 1, 19. And all the promises made to Israel are fulfilled in Christ. So there is, there is a basic unit, unity between Israel and the church, and the church is the new Israel, and thus superior to the Israel of old. <clears throat> We see, for example, that the Lord himself says in Matthew 16, verse 16 through 20, that uh, uh, he will build his church and even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. In Ephesians 2.20, he says that the church is built upon the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone. And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the, the New Testament apostles or prophets being the foundation of, of uh, with Christ himself being the cornerstone, the church is established on a firmer ground than the Israel of old. <clears throat> and again, if you look at the parables of the, of the Gospels of the Lord, the kingdom was taken away from the ethnic Jews and given to a nation, and a nation here is singular, which is not a reference to nations, it's a reference to one nation, the commonwealth of Israel, that produces the fruit of it. And that does assume the unity of Israel and the church. But then it shows that this is a superior, it's a superior, uh, a superior kingdom, it's a superior nation, it's a better commonwealth, um, than what was there. So the question is, how is the church superior to the Israel of old? It is superior in at least two ways. There is this new universality. It's, a, it's not just the Jews, it's also the Gentiles. It's Jews plus Gentiles comprising the church. So there is a new universality. And you see that in, in many passages in the Old Testament as well as in the New. For example, in Psalm 22 verse 25, compare that and other passages in the Old Testament with Acts 15, verse 15 to 17, and you would see that there is that new universality that has been introduced. And then secondly, there is a new spirituality. Because the spirit, of, uh, the spirit of Christ has been poured abundantly with the coming or the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
It just shows that this new spirituality in the new Israel is better than it was for the old Israel. I'm sorry I have to stop there. I've only answered a few questions. Seems like we will need to spend four more weeks to be able to cover all the questions. If I'm going to answer them substantially, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the time we've spent considering various questions regarding last things. We pray that you may continue to teach us these things, Lord, and establish us in your word and help us to love your word and uh, to love you and follow you, O oh Lord. So hear us, bless us, guide us today to honor you in all things. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.